You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future, Episode 13, with Daniel Pell. Good evening and welcome to our series, Echoes from the Past and Pictures of the Future. We've come to night number 13, presentation number 13, entitled The Fall of Babylon, The Fall of Babylon. We are really getting towards the close of our series here. This is the second last meeting, and we are coming towards also the close of the book of Revelation. It's been an amazing journey. I've really enjoyed it as we've been going through the pages of the books of Daniel and Revelation. Um, as I've said earlier, we've not been able to cover everything. It's certainly been um, a bird's perspective, a big picture of these books. Uh, but it has indeed been an amazing journey as we have made a lot of discoveries, both in the areas of history, uh, present times, and uh, most excitingly, of course, prophecies that are just before us. And this all at, um, really contributes to the authenticity and veracity of the Bible and prophecy in particular. It is so encouraging to know that God has not only uh, revealed the present, but he has also revealed the future for us. Uh, you know, an historian tells us about the past and a journalist tells us about the present, but who can tell us about the future? God can, and that we, can, we have seen and experienced uh, in these journeys of prophecy. So we're going to get right into our presentation, The Fall of Babylon, and before we do so, let us ask the Lord to be with us as we pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word, to open the book of Revelation. We ask that you will speak to our hearts tonight, that you will give us understanding of these deep prophecies that you have revealed 2,000 years ago, Lord, to John on that island. And yet they are so relevant for us as we are living in the fulfillment of them. But Lord, we ask for spiritual understanding because we realize that spiritual things are spiritually understood. So please be with us, grant us your guidance and your wisdom, which comes from above, for we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. The book of Revelation, we turn our attention tonight to the 17th chapter. But before we are going to study Revelation chapter 17, I want to do a little bit of a review of what we looked at yesterday. Yesterday, we had a look at the three angels' messages, powerful messages, thrilling messages found there in chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14. Uh, some stud students of prophecy, uh, some students of the book of Revelation have um, put together like a structure of the book of Revelation and they say that Revelation chapter 12, 13 and 14, those three chapters are really like kind of the mountaintop experience of Revelation where you have a structure where it builds up towards that and then afterwards it builds, it, it kind of goes the other direction and so you have this mountaintop experience in those chapters of the great great controversy that is really played out there uh, in those chapters. You remember Revelation chapter 12 with uh, the woman in Bible prophecy, God's church. Uh, Revelation 13, the Antichrist on the, uh, in the picture. And then Revelation 14, uh, these three final messages that will go into all the world before Jesus comes the second time. 
And really everything that comes after Revelation chapter 14 um, is an enlargement of that picture that is given there. And it is also um, a real uh, defeat to the enemy and to spiritual Babylon that is pictured there. And so uh, tonight our presentation is entitled The Fall of Babylon. And we're going to see how Babylon will ultimately not last. How this false structure and system that has been built um, to oppose truth will ultimately come to its fall. But before we go there, a little review here. Revelation chapter 14, three incredible messages that lead up to the second coming of Christ, three incredible messages that prepare the world for the coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first angel's message is found in Revelation chapter 14 and verses 6 and 7. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So the first message is a call to worship God. It's a call to worship the Creator. It is a call to 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 um, accept the everlasting gospel, which includes fearing God and giving Him glory. Sometimes, you know, we hear about the gospel, and it seems to just be a kind of cheap grace message in which we just you know continue living our lives and understand that Jesus has done something for us. But this goes a lot deeper. Uh, when we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, we will be willing for him not only to be kind of the footnotes in our lives, so to speak, but he will become everything in our lives. We will want him in every area of our lives. We will want him in our hearts. And that will, that will um, steer in us a, a longing to worship him and to fear him and give him glory, also in obedience to the commandments that he has given us in his word. And so we see that the first angel's message is a call to worship. It's a call to live our lives in the presence of the God that we serve. Then we come to the second angel's message, which is really going to be our focus tonight. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. Another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Right after the first angel's message call to true worship, we have the second angel's message, which is a warning against false worship. And we will look closely at this message. But yesterday night, in our last presentation, we particularly also had a look at the third angel's message, which is a further development of the second angel's message because it really goes into detail as to what we are to be aware of, what we are to shun and turn away from, um, what constitutes false worship in the end of time. Take notice of these, this message that we looked at in our last presentation, Revelation 14, verse 9 to 12. It says, then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. 
Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so we have the contrast in the third angel's message between those that receive the mark of the beast, either in their foreheads or in their hands, and then those that are commandment-keeping people. It says here are the patience of the saints, those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So really in the end of time, there's going to be a polarization between only two categories, basically, and those are the commandment-keeping people of God and the, those that follow the beast and worship his image, those that receive his mark. So we have two groups of people in the end of time. Either we are the commandment-keeping people of God, or we are those that receive the mark of the beast. And remember, in contrast to the mark of the beast, Revelation talks about the seal of God. We can be those that receive the seal of God in our foreheads. And we looked, yet, we looked in our last presentation at the seal of God being the commandments of God. God's new covenant involves that he is going to write his commandments in our minds, in our hearts, including the fourth commandment, which says, remember the seventh day. Remember the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day is a day of rest. It is a day in which we enter into that relationship with God. And that day, it, it shows that the God we serve, the God we belong to. In contrast to this, the beast power, the Antichrist power, which we have identified as Rome, papal Rome, has made its own day of rest and it has attempted to change the commandments of God exactly as Bible prophecy predicted it would do. So here we have a little review of those three angels' messages. The first angel's message really being a call to worship the true God. The third angel's message, a warning of what we are not to worship and a warning of what we are to turn away from, from false worship, a power that has put itself in the place of God and has attempted to change the commandments of God and is leading the world astray. And instead of walking those, ro those roads to Rome, we can walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Amen? And when we walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, he will seal us as he has promised to do in the book of Revelation. And so we continue here, and we want to have a special look again at that second angel's message that talked about Babylon. And the question, of course, is, what is Babylon? Let's look at the second angel's message again. Revelation 14 and verse 8. The Bible says, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is fallen. That's the message of Revelation. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And it talks about this Babylon as being a great city. And then it says, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So it's talking about a woman. It's talking about a city. It's talking about Babylon. And these things we bring together. And there's another chapter that talks about Babylon, that talks about a city, that talks about a woman. And that is Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. That deals with what we call spiritual Babylon. Now, in order to understand what spiritual Babylon is, we need to use the key of prophecy. And this is a key that we've been using throughout our series. It is the key of going back into the past. That's why I entitled this series, Echoes from the Past and Pictures of the Future. In order to understand the pictures of the future, we need to understand the echoes of the past, the stories of the past. 
And so if this modern, if this language in Revelation employs words like Babylon and names like Babylon, then we need to go back in the Old Testament and find out where does Babylon come from? What were the characteristics of Babylon? What did it do in the past? And we take these characteristics and we can see what we can expect as to this modern spiritual Babylon in the near future or even in the very days in which we're living. So let's take a look. And this principle we've, by the way, used a couple of times already, uh, quite a number of times already in this series. You might remember when we studied the beasts in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and we looked at these four beasts, a lion with wings, a bear with, with three ribs in its mouth, and then the leopard with the four heads and the four wings, and the dragon-like beast, if you remember. All those beasts in Daniel 7, they came together in Revelation chapter 13. And so you have that principle of echoes of the past, pictures of the future. Uh, also many of the stories. And so it is with Babylon. In Revelation chapter 17, you have the picture of a harlot woman sitting on a scarlet-colored beast. But that's not the first place where we read the name Babylon. Going back all the way to Genesis, we encounter a story in the book of Genesis shortly after the flood in Genesis chapter 11. We read about how the nations came together, the people came together, and they built a tower, and they called that the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel. That is actually the origin of um, Babylon. And so we're going to look at that story of Babylon there in the beginning in Genesis. Uh, but first I would like to read the prophecy in, in Revelation chapter 17. And then we'll be going a little bit forth and back between the prophecy and the story and make some uh, incredible connections there. Revelation chapter 17. Take notice of the prophecy of spiritual Babylon beginning in verse 1. Revelation 17, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Quite a description, is it not? And then it goes on to say, listen to this as it comes to a climax here. It says, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And then verse 6 says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. John says, I marveled with great amazement. Now, certainly John had already seen some, some, some incredible things throughout the book of Revelation. But this, this particular vision, this particular picture, it just totally amazed him. He couldn't imagine, he could not even grasp what he was beholding here. And this picture, my friends, is a startling picture of prophecy that shows the far-reaching consequences of false worship. Verse 6 says that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints. This is a persecuting power that in the name of God is persecuting the very people of God. 
Now, what is a woman in Bible prophecy? We need to do a little bit of review here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, Paul writing to the church of the Corinthians, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. A woman in Bible prophecy is a symbol of a church. It's a symbol of a church. Now, you immediately say, well, 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 that, that, that description that we just read in Revelation 17, that can certainly not be the church of Christ. Well, it is pretending to be the church. It is appearing to be the church, but of course, it's not the true bride of Christ. That's why in the book of Revelation, you will find two women depicted. One in Revelation chapter 12, the true bride of Christ. One in Revelation 17 that we just read about, and that is the counterfeit bride or the one that appears to be the bride of Christ, but in reality is not. And she bears a very different message, a very different message altogether. Now, another verse that um, verifies for us the, the truth that indeed uh, Christ has a bride and that bride is his people. Uh, take notice of Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. You see the comparison there? And gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So Jesus has a bride. And his bride is his church, and it is put on display there in the book of Revelation, but it is certainly not the woman in Revelation 17, though she is wanting to be the bride of Christ, who's appearing to be the bride of Christ, but in reality, it is a counterfeit and a false bride. In Revelation 12, we do encounter the true church of Christ, and we've already looked at this incredible prophecy in Revelation chapter 12, you have the beautiful picture of God's movement throughout the ages. In verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. See, this is really the movement of God. She is clothed with the sun, and we know that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And the true church of Christ the true bride of Christ will have the word of God as their light. The word of God will be their focus. The word of God will be their study. The word of God will be their message. And it says that she had a garland of 12 stars. When you think about the movement throughout the ages, in the Old Testament, we have Israel with the 12 tribes. In the New Testament, we have the early church that was begun by the 12 disciples. It's very interesting that that number 12 appears to be connected with the movement of God throughout Scripture. She's clothed with the sun, clothed with the word of God, standing on the moon. The moon is a reflection of the, uh, reflects the light of the sun, just as the word of God reflects the light that comes from Jesus Christ. This is God's uh, movement, movement throughout the ages. And you come to God's end time movement, which is described in the very last verse of Revelation chapter 12. It says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, went to make war with the rest of her offspring. And then it gives us the identification marks of the remnant, the offspring of this woman. 
who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is God's final remnant movement in the end of time. These are the faithful. This is the true bride. In contrast, we have a counterfeit bride in Revelation chapter 17. We've already read the description. This is a woman that rides on a scarlet colored beast that is drunk with the blood of the saints. It is a persecuting power. There are many interesting identification marks as to this power in Revelation chapter 17. Let's look at a couple of them. First of all, it is a church. We've already identified that based on a woman in Bible prophecy is a church. So we're looking here at a church system, a church structure. Secondly, it is a persecuting church according to verse 6. Verse 6 told us that uh, she was um, drunken with the blood of the saints. Thirdly, its official colors of this church is purple and scarlet. It said there right in verse 4, it said, and I can read it here again, it says, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. So these are the official colors of this church. It's a very rich church. Also, according to verse, uh, verse 4, it says that she has gold and precious stones and pearls. It's a very rich organization. It's situated in an area of many nations. This is according to verse 15. We didn't read that um, uh, just a moment ago, but in verse 15, in the same chapter, it says the following. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So it is, an, it is situated in a place of many nations or many people. It's a city, Revelation 14, verse 8. Remember the second angel's message? Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. So Babylon is also a city. It's situated on seven mountains or seven hills, according to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9. If you go to verse 9, it says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So there's a lot of identification marks here in Revelation chapter 17, and we put them all together. It's situated on, a, on seven mountains or seven hills. It has connection with politics. According to verse 3, it says that, it says the following, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemies, having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 2 says, With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So that should be verse 2 there, which talks about the kings, the, the, the connection with the kings of the earth. Verse 12 it says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So Revelation 17 has a lot of identification marks. One more here. It says, it has adopted pagan teachings and doctrines. According to verse 2, it is committed adultery with the world, with the kings of the earth. So there is this amalgamation of paganism and worldliness in this church. Now, looking at all these characteristics and really putting them all together, it is, of course, not very hard to be able to um, find out, to discover 
which church this is talking about. There's really only one church on the face of this planet that has an official colors of purple and scarlet that is very rich, that is situated in an area of many nations, that is also a city that is situated on seven mountains or hills, has connection with politics and has adopted pagan teachings and doctrines and has also persecuted in the past. And this is, of course, the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome has the official colors of purple and scarlet. It is one of the most richest organizations on the planet, and it indeed has even ambassadors from other countries visit it. It is Vatican City, and Rome is built on seven hills, seven mountains. So there's no doubt when you put all the characteristics of Revelation 17 together that it is pointing to this power. Now, you will remember that in Bible prophecy, there are different moments in the book of Daniel and Revelation that this power is actually unmasked and put on, on, on display. And... Um, Really, in a number of places, you have, for example, the little horn in Daniel 7. You have the beast in Revelation 13. You have the king of the north in Daniel 11. You have the, uh, the beast and the woman here in Revelation 17. So it's different depictions of this power. And it really follows the interpretation uh, uh, method that we've looked at previously. And that is the re repetition and enlargement. You'll have a prophecy, and then it will be repeated, that prophecy, but then enlarged with greater detail. Then you will have another prophecy that is again repeating the same, but again with greater detail. And so really the last great exposure of this power, the last great unmasking of this power is Revelation chapter 17. And that's why it's one of the most um, detailed descriptions of this system. And we'll get a little bit deeper into it in just a moment. Now, going back to Genesis, as I said, we're going to do a little bit of the echoes of the past and the pictures of the future here. In the book of, Ad, uh, of Genesis, we read about also a system or um, a nation that built, um, that wanted to build a false system and a false um, counterfeit religion and it was instituted right there at the Tower of Babel. I want you to take notice of the language here um, of the scriptures as it brings us to the beginning of the building of this tower. Genesis chapter 10 and verses 8 to 10. The Bible says, Gush begot, begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. This is the first place in scripture where you would encounter the word kingdom. The first time. And it's talking about the kingdom of Balaam. And it was began by an individual by the name of Nimrod. Now, the name Nimrod means we shall rebel. That's what the name Nimrod means. So, parents, don't call your son Nimrod. We shall rebel. Now, listen, listen to how this further... It's interesting because the first place in the Old Testament where the name kingdom appears, the word kingdom appears, it is in connection with a Babylonian kingdom. The first place in the New Testament where the word kingdom appears, it is in connection with the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God. Very interesting observation. In verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 3, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we really have a decision to make between the kingdoms of this world or the kingdoms of heaven. The kingdom of Babylon or the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. 
So there in the book of Genesis, we read about the building of the Tower of Babel. Let's look at the story. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and make them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, what is the primal focus, the primal purpose of the building of this city and the building of this tower? According to scripture, that they make, may make a name for themselves. They want to make their name great. Now, what happens when you want to make your name great? You know, that something sets in that is called pride, and pride leads to fall, pride leads to sin. This is really the original problem that this world faced. Of course, when we go further back, we have Lucifer in heaven that was once an exalted angel, and he rebelled against his maker because he became proud, and sin entered into his heart. He wanted to make a name for himself. And because the, his name was not exalted enough in heaven, according to his estimation, he made war on heaven, he was cast out of heaven, and now he is seeking to make a name for himself here on earth. And he's doing it through systems and powers that give glory to him rather than give glory to God, that choose for his kingdom rather than choose for the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. And so here you have a tower that is being built, and the tower is being built from earth to heaven. It is really a, a picture of, um, of the works of man, the achievements of man. They will find their way to heaven, not trusting in Christ that came down from heaven, but trusting in their own power to make it to heaven. And so they build this tower, this huge tower. It says in verse 9, therefore it is, it's, it is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. You might remember the story. They're all building that tower together. There's only one language and everything seems to go fine. It all goes well. Till suddenly the Lord confuses the languages and one person asks a question and it's answered in another language and suddenly they cannot communicate with each other anymore. You know, I, I, I travel a lot in my life and I come to very different countries and, and sometimes, you know, when you don't have a translator, you just can't really communicate. You try to work with your hands, and, but it doesn't always work with the hands and the feet. You need the language. You need to be one in language. And so there was confusion and they left the place and it was not completed. God intervened. But the origin of Babylon is the origin of sun worship. There's a very interesting book written by James uh, Bracer. He writes in The Worship of Nature, volume 1, page 529, he says, In ancient Babylon, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. So you go all the way back, and really the origin of sun worship, which has always been present in paganism, and has come into the Christian church through the exaltation of sun day. But you go all the way back, and where did it originate? It came from ancient Babylon. The Two Babylons, a book by Dr. Alexander Hislop, he writes the following, Babylon was the primal source from which all these systems of idolatry flowed. Uh, 
So out of Babylon, you get all these different kind of religions, all these different kind of persuasions and, 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 and directions. But really, it can be traced back to Babylon. That's where it comes from. That's the primal source from which it all flowed. And so we have the Tower of Babel, we have the story of Babylon in the past, in the book of Genesis. The tower was not completed, and yet the concept and ideology and beliefs of Babylon continue throughout the ages, and they come and climax in the book of Revelation in spiritual Babylon. At Genesis chapter 11, listen to how the story um, unfolded. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over all the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. I want you to remember that it is the Lord that confused the languages and caused them to disperse from one another. What we're going to see in the spiritual Babylon in the end of time, that it's also going to be the Lord that is going to confuse that power so it will not be able to accomplish what it had purposed to accomplish. So we find Babylon, there have been many attempts to rebuild the city and rebuild the tower particular of Babylon. There have been various Babylonian kings um, also um, around the time of Daniel the prophet that actually tried to rebuild that tower, but it never worked. It never happened for some reason. The last person that really attempted to, to um, build that tower and the remains of that tower was Alexander the Great. And yet he died at a very young age and didn't get to do it either. So it was never, it was never rebuilt. It was never made um, from that very moment that uh, God intervened there. Actually, there are prophecies in uh, the book of Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament that talk about um, ancient Babylon and, the, and, and that it would never be rebuilt again. Because we have the city, we have the Tower of Babel, but later, of course, we also have the city of, Bab of, of Babylon where, where Daniel the prophet um, lived during his captivity there. Um, but that city was ultimately also overtaken and destroyed, and we know that it is never, the prophecies predicted that it never would be rebuilt again. Uh, this is one of those prophecies found in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19 and 20. It says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, if you remember the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, the utter overthrowing of those two cities, they, were, they, they have never been um, rebuilt again. It will never be inhabited, it says, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will uh, Arabian tent, pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. A very clear, straightforward prophecy. There was an individual, though, in recent times that tried to rebuild Babylon. That was none other than Saddam Hussein, the former dictator of Iraq. He considered himself to be the spiritual ancestor of Nebuchadnezzar. He even had himself photographed at one time in a replica war chariot of the Babylonians. And of course, Babylon was known for the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. And so, you know, you can start wondering why Nebuchadnezzar um, understood or believed himself to be a spiritual ancestor of Nebuchadnezzar. There might be some, you know, some thinking in that. But what he ultimately wanted is to rebuild Babylon, but he never 
got the chance to do that. We know he was overthrown and Babylon still remains in utter, utter, you know, just, it's just a pile of rocks. And there is really nothing that, that, that testifies of, of greatness in Babylon any longer. There might be some structures there, but really it's nothing of the glory that it once had in ancient times. And prophecy predicted that it would never be rebuilt again. There have been attempts to rebuild it, and yet they have utterly failed. And so to, prophecy has stood the test of time there. Now, let, let's look at a couple of identifications of this Babylonian system of the past, this, this Tower of Babel of the past that can connect with our prophecies in Revelation 17. We see that the tower was a monument of salvation by works. Think about it. They wanted to build their way to heaven. Now, you've got you to understand that those that built the Tower of Babel were not necessarily atheists. They were not people that denied the existence of God. It was shortly after the flood. They knew very well that there was a God. They had seen what, what God had done to the earth uh, during the flood. And so as they come together to build, this ark, uh, to build this tower, their focus is on achieving the desire of their hearts to make it to heaven, to have a safe um, place and yet not under the guidance of God but under the own dictates of their own conscience. They wanted to go their own way, to do their own thing and they worked in disobedience of course to the clear command of God. The tower was a monument to human pride. You know, let's make for ourselves a name. The tower was a monument to mankind's disobedience and defiance of God's word. God had clearly commanded that they were to scatter across the face of the earth. The tower was a monument to human achievement. Let's see what we can do. And the tower was a monument to creating a heaven on earth. When you look at the city of Babylon, and you look at the description of the city of Babylon, and you compare it to another city that we read about in the book of Revelation, and that is New Jerusalem, that is being prepared in heaven, it's interesting to uh, note that Babylon was really uh, kind of like a heaven on earth, and yet, of course, it was filled with the pleasures of, of worldliness and sin. And yet what Babylon is trying to create is a heaven on earth. It has the hanging gardens in the city. It has a river flowing through it. It has many characteristics that also we find in the New Jerusalem. And so it's really, in that sense, a perfect counterfeit of God's original plan. Mankind is trying to make their heaven here on earth without God. That's the counterfeit picture of Babylon. And so the story really reflects itself in many ways in mystery Babylon the Great. As we now come back to our prophecy in Revelation 17, let's see if some of these uh, stories of the past can connect with this prophecy. Let's look at verse 5 again, Revelation 17 and verse 5. On and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. It tells us that this power that is called Mystery Babylon is also said to be the mother of harlots. The mother of harlots. Well, we identified this system, this church here, as the Church of Rome. And it's interesting to note that the Church of Rome claims that she indeed is the mother of all churches. Listen to this interesting article. Um, this is taken um, from a, a newspaper where I, it really caught my attention. The, um, 
the title there, it says, Ours is the Mother of Churches, says Vatican. And then this is part of the article here. It says, In a letter to all the bishops' conferences worldwide, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger writes, It must be always clear that the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic universal church is not the sister, but the mother of all churches. So when Rome talks about um, when, when the Catholic Church of Rome talks about its position, it's not talking about being a sister church to other denominations. It's talking about, to be, about being the mother church. In Revelation 17, this Babylon, Babylon this, this woman that, that is depicted there, has a name, Mystery Babylon the Great, and then it calls, and then it says, she is the mother of harlots. So there are other women, there are other, other churches that are under the Church of Rome, that are following Rome in its footsteps. And certainly today, as we look at what we, what we call the ecumenical movement, we are seeing that many churches are coming together and they're putting away aside their particular doctrines and they're coming together and say, we need to stand together in unity, and that unity is under the um, umbrella of Rome. Rome is unifying the churches. They are coming together, and under the teachings of Rome, and what Rome is basically doing here is fulfilling Bible prophecy according to Revelation 17. She is the mother of harlots. Mark chapter 7 and verse 7, Jesus himself, he said, how be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Instead of, instead of teaching the commandments of God, churches, many churches today, sad to say, they are teaching the commandments of men. And the commandments of men really have their origin in Rome. Because Rome, what did it do? When paganism and Christianity merged back there in the 3rd and 4th century, Rome is, in, is a concoction of paganistic ideas and philosophies kind of Christianized and almost baptized, you could say, and masked in this garb of Christianity. And yet, Jesus put it plainly. He said, they're not teaching the commandments of God. They teach the doctrines of of men, the commandments of men. This is exactly what's happening. Listen to this quote. This, this is quite a startling observation by a Baptist, um, Dr. Edward Hiscox, at a ministry con uh, convention. He said the following, what a pity that it Sunday, Sunday sacredness, Sunday worship, comes branded with the mark of paganism and christened with the name of the sun god then adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to Protestantism. Now grasp that for a moment. You see, the origin of Sunday is, of course, from sun worship, from paganism. It is brought into the Church of Rome, and yet Protestantism, which began as a protest against Rome and a protest against the false teachings of Rome, have not protested when it comes to that particular point of doctrine, that particular point of truth, which is in a very essential part of truth because it's part of the law of God. It's part of the commandments of God. It's the heart of the commandments of God. Remember the Sabbath day. And so we see how this uh, apostasy, papal apostasy, has bequeathed as a sacred legacy to Protestantism. Protestantism has not protested against these this change of Rome, at least not Protestantism at large. There are Protestant uh, movements that have 
um, stood uh, firm on the word of God um, and have clung to the seventh day Sabbath. There are Protestants that do that, but the, uh, the majority have bought in to the false teachings of Rome in that, in, the, in that area. Now let us look a little closer here at Revelation 17. It gets very, um, very detailed language here in the next verses and incredibly um, exciting. Look at this, verse 7 to 11. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. So the woman is the church sitting on a beast, and that beast has seven heads and ten horns. And listen to what it says. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come and when he comes he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Now, the first time that I read that, I was a little bit, you know, <laughs> taken back. I thought, whoa, what does this mean? The seven, the eighth, the first, the last, the was, the was not, then is. It, it, it's kind of a very um, intricate language here. And we need to really take it step by step in order to understand. As I said previously, Revelation 17 is really the climax of the revelation of this apostate power of Rome. And so you have the revelation given in uh, the book of Daniel several times. You have revelation given in earlier chapters of the book of Revelation of this power. Revelation 17 brings it all together. And so we need to put the puzzle pieces together of what we have already studied. The scripture said there in Revelation 17, Five have fallen. One is, and one is to come for a short time. And then that one that comes for a short time is going to empower, again, one that is of the seven. That's the language that we read. Now, what we do is we go back and we see what we have already studied in the books of Daniel and Revelation and see if we can put these kings or these powers together. When it says five are fallen, well, we can start, you know, guessing what these five powers could possibly be. But really, when you look at Daniel and Revelation, we have already identified the major um, kingdoms that have come and fall throughout the ages. And you will remember all the way back when we were studying Daniel chapter 2 and all the way back in Daniel chapter 2, we had an incredible prophecy of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in which he, he um, as Daniel uh, interpreted the dream, in which he saw the kingdoms coming and falling from Babylon all the way to the end of time. Now, those kingdoms were further developed in other chapters of the book of Daniel. In Daniel, for example, chapter 7, we had again four beasts coming up out of the sea, representing also four nations. So let's look at those, because those are indeed um, the kings that we know about in the books of Daniel and Revelation. So when it says in Revelation 17, five have fallen, where do we get those five from? Well, we go back and see what we have already learned. We had Babylon being the first king that was resembled there in Daniel chapter 7 with the lion with the wings, if you will remember. 
Then we have the second king, Medo-Persia, which was represented by the bear raised up on one side with the three ribs in its mouth, also found there in Daniel chapter 7. Then the third kingdom that came after Medo-Persia was Greece, with, resembled by the leopard with the four wings and the four heads. And then the fourth kingdom after Greece was none other than the kingdom of Rome, represented by the dragon there in Daniel chapter 7. So there we have four kings, and then you will remember that out of that fourth beast came a little horn, which was of course the antichrist power, or the papacy, which was not only a religious power, but also a political power. And so if we're talking about five kings have fallen, we here have these five kings, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and then papal Rome. Five have fallen, and then the Bible said there in Revelation chapter seven, uh, 17, it says, five are fallen, and one is. Verse 10 says, these are the seven kings, five have fallen, one is. So John in prophecy is brought to the time in which that one is that comes just after those five have fallen. And when we look at where that would be in the scope of history, that would bring us right to that nation that conquered or that abolished the papacy, that gave the papacy a deadly wound. And that was the nation of France, this atheistic power that later we also learned um, about the French Revolution that, um, of course, caused um, uh, a lot of, uh, it was a great war on the word of God at the time, a very uh, God-hating uh, nation at that time uh, of the French Revolution. But it was this power that abolished the uh, the connection or the unity of church and state there in 1798 after that period of, of the Dark Ages. And so when we talk about five have fallen and one is, in Revelation 17, it's really giving us an, a picture of kingdoms that have already come. We see that Babylon has already fallen. Medo-Persia has already fallen. Greece has already fallen. Rome, pagan Rome has passed off the scenes. Papal Rome, well, it received a deadly wound in history. We know it's going to come back again and it's coming back. But in history, it received a deadly wound. And then we are we brought right to this power, this atheistic power that became, of course, more and more significant in the world, not only in France, but in other nations. We think about Russia and other communistic um, countries where atheism was very prominent. But that's not the end of the story. We actually see that atheism received a great um, defeat in many ways in, in, in just uh, recent, uh, recent history. And out of that, the great superpower that really emerged onto the world's scene was none other than the United States of America. And look at what power comes next. We have five are fallen, one is, and one is to come. And remember in Revelation chapter 13, the second beast that comes up there does not come up out of the sea, but it comes up out of the earth. It's, it's called the, it's, it's referred to as the lamb, uh, the, the, the beast that had, um, lamb-like principles because it led lamb like horns like a lamb uh, truly being a, a picture there of the United States coming on the scene as a Christian nation but then it said it would speak as a dragon it would speak as a dragon now going back to Revelation 17 and you can follow in your Bibles look again at verse 10 verse 10 says there are also seven kings five have fallen 
One is, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. That's talking about the, the seventh power here, the um, United States of America. And then verse 11, look at this. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven and is going to perdition. So the one that is really in the end, look at this now, he is of the seven, here he is, he is actually the fifth, but he was not, he was taken up, uh, taken out of the scene by France in 1798, but he received a deadly wound. But what does the Bible say? The deadly wound would be healed. And so that power, which was of the fifth, comes back and he is the eighth and he is of the seven. So really we see here a panorama of prophecy as all the puzzle pieces of Daniel and Revelation come together. You know, we have, we have studied through these nations, we've studied through these powers, and then in Revelation 17 is the last um, um, really uncovering of this um, false system, this false power of Rome, and it gives us a historic picture of how it has come to this moment. Five kings have fallen. One is, that's where we are, that's where we are in this prophetic picture, and one would come, the United States of America would rise with great power, according to Revelation 13. And then out of that beast, out of the United States, what would they do? They would enforce the worship of the first beast. He is the eighth, and he is of the seven. He, ha he, he received a deadly wound, but that deadly wound has now been healed. This is the new Roman Empire, the new world order under Rome that will be established according to Bible prophecy in the very last days of earth's history. Now take notice how it further develops here in this prophecy of Revelation 17. We have come to verse 12. Verse 12 says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are the, of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And these who are with him are called, chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the warders which you saw where the harlot sits are people, multitudes, nations and tongues. Now in this portion of the prophecy here in Revelation 17, it depicts this final war that will break out between the faithful of God and this apostate power. And it, and it obviously looks like in this, in this this, uh, scenario here that God's people are going to lose because it says, you know, here it talks about this beast making war against the lamb. You can picture kind of before you this enormous beast and this little lamb. It seems obvious who's going to lose. But the lamb is a symbol of none other than Jesus Christ. And those that are with him, they are called, chosen, and they are faithful. They are sealed by the living God. They are on the winning side. Even though it may appear for all appearances that they're going to be the losers, Revelation predicts that they will be the winners. They will be those that will gain the victory in this final battle. It talks about the ten kings that will unite with the beast for one hour. Now that hour there is not a prophetic hour as some believe. It is actually, when you go to the original meaning of the word, it appears to mean a short period of time, short undetermined period of time. It's like when Jesus came to the end of his ministry 
just prior to his betrayal and crucifixion, Jesus says the hour of darkness has come. The hour of the prince of this world has come. He was not talking about a literal 60-minute period that he was going to go uh, and be betrayed and crucified that took longer than 60 minutes, but he was indicating a time of darkness. And so this word here also implies a time of an undetermined yet short period of time of the powers of darkness that will make war on the Lamb, that will make war on the followers of Christ. It says the king, 10 kings will unite, which is really a picture of the past because you will remember that in the past, the 10 kings of Europe, they gave their power and authority to the beast, to the, to the papacy in times of the dark ages. And so that picture of the past, this echo from the past, reoccurs now in the prophetic scenario where the 10 kings in the last days, the 10, 10 nations, and it, it might not be the exact 10, but it, it, it shows a number of universality and a number of the, the, the nations of this world giving their power to the papacy in this final act as it has risen to this supreme level upon, upon in, in which the whole world has to worship it. And yet, God tells us, a prophecy tells us, that there will be those that will be faithful, those that will be chosen, those that will remain side by side with the Lamb, and that will not go along with the multitudes that are revealed here in Revelation. Who will you worship is the real question of Revelation. It is the question that reoccurs to us over and over again as we look at these incredible prophecies. Will we follow in the path of Rome? Will we follow in the path of Jesus Christ? The ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, in the very last moments, what happens here is that the very kings that supported the papacy, that supported the woman, turn against her. They turn against her. They realize that they have been corrupted. They realize that, that this has been a false system, that this has been um, fake, that this has been a counterfeit, and they turn against her. You know, the end of Babylon in the book of Revelation is similar to the confusion that was caused there in ancient Babylon at the Tower of Babel. They tried to build that tower, God confused the languages, and they dispersed from one another. In the last days, spiritual Babylon comes together, and it seems that it has all the might, all the power, all the prestige, all the titles. It has all the kings that are united with her, and what happens then? Suddenly the kings turn against her. Suddenly there's, there's disunity in the camp of the enemy. Many times when you look at the stories of the past, that's exactly what God did. There was an army arrayed against the people of God, and there was no way out. It seems that they were going to defe be defeated. And then God would cause confusion in their own camp, and they would start killing each other, and then the victory was given to God. That's what's going to happen with spiritual Babylon. Spiritual Babylon that seems to be so united, so unified in opposition to the truth, God predicts Prophecy predicts that there will be disunity in that camp and it will fall apart. It will fall apart just before Christ comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Babylon the Great 
is fallen, is fallen. That's the message of Revelation. Revelation gives us not only the prophecy of what's going to happen to this power, spiritual Babylon, this church that is unifying the world in this one world government, this one world power, and it says that all the world will wonder after the beast. My friends, also we have the prediction that that power will fall apart. Confusion will enter into the camp. It will fall apart. Babylon the Great has fallen. There is an entire chapter in Revelation that deals with the fall of Babylon, and that's chapter 18. You can read through Revelation 18, and it talks about how this Babylon is going to utterly, utterly fall apart. In Genesis chapter 12, we find a typology of what happens in Revelation 18. It's incredibly interesting. Genesis 11 deals with the Tower of Babel. Genesis 12 deals with the coming out of Babylon. Revelation 17 deals with the fall of Babylon, spiritual Babylon in the end of time. Revelation 18 is a call out of Babylon. It's incredible the typology and the prophecy, the echo of the past and the picture of the future. Take notice, just after the Tower of Babel, after that, that project fails, God calls out Abram from the region of Babylon in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember that Babylon wanted to make a name for themselves? And here it says that Abram, Abram, God would give a name to Abram, and that name, of course, would be the name of the Lord. The Lord would be put on display. His name would be glorified through Abraham. And a great blessing would follow through the faithfulness of Abram. He is led out of Ur the Chaldean, which was the region of Babylon. We look at the prophecy, we look at the story, and then we compare it with the prophecy. In Revelation chapter 18, just after the fall of Babylon, listen to what it says in verse 1 to 4. It says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. The final call is given in Revelation 18 to come out of Babylon. It is a call to come out of confusion. It is a call to come out of man-made religion. It is a call to come out of a a system that is made up of the traditions of man rather than the commandments of God. The clear call is given by Christ himself. Come out of her, my people. And included in Babylon is not only the harlot, the mother church of Rome, but also her daughters. She has daughters. There are Protestant denominations that are no longer protesting. There are so-called Protestant denominations that are now walking in the very footsteps of Rome. They are confused regarding the truth of Scripture. And so the call of the book of Revelation, the call of Christ has come out of her, my people. God has his people in all these denominations and he's calling them out. John chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
Jesus presents himself as the shepherd and the sheep, they hear his voice and follow him. He is going to bring together a fold, a fold that is going to represent his bride, his church, that will hold on to the truths of his word. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. That's the message of Revelation. That's the second angel's message in Revelation 14, verse 8. It's the message throughout Revelation chapter 18. This system, this false system, this false church, this false power is fallen. And when the final events transpire of the book of Revelation, we see how probation closes for this very power. Revelation chapter 15, and this is going a little bit back here, but Re because Revelation is not um, entirely in chronological order, but if you go back to Revelation 15 and 16, it gives the picture of the fall of Babylon and then what actually happens when probation closes for this world. It talks about in Revelation 15 about smoke filling the temple in heaven. Let me just read the verse in Revelation 15 verse 8. It says, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. When the fall of Babylon is complete, when the confusion of Babylon is complete, when all these things that we just uh, read about actually transpire before us, the very next event is the temple being filled with smoke. Revelation 15 and no one is able to enter into the temple. Why not? Because the intercession of Jesus has now ended. Jesus as high priest has left the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and is now coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The temple is filled with smoke. No one is able to enter. There's no ministry going on in the heavenly sanctuary anymore because Jesus Christ is now no longer a high priest, but now he's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then in Revelation 16, you have the picture of the seven last plagues that are poured out upon this earth. Babylon has fallen. Babylon is corrupted. Probation has closed. Now the seven last plagues are poured out, and this is final, the final events just before Christ returns in great glory. And those seven plagues, you can read about them in Revelation chapter 16. Now, my friends, the good news is that these plagues do not affect at all those that have the seal of God. Those that are on God's side, those that have been sealed by him, that are followers of the Lamb, they will not receive these plagues. These plagues only affect those that are receiving the mark of the beast, either in their forehand, forehead or in their hands, that follow the, this false system of worship. Plague number one is loathsome sores. Plague number two, you can read about it in Revelation 16. It talks about the sea that turns to blood. By the way, some of these plagues are very similar to the ones that were poured, up, poured out on Egypt when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, out of bondage. Also in Egypt, the plagues did not affect the Hebrews or the Israelites, just as in the last days, they will not affect the people of God when they are poured out. In the book of Exodus, we read about 10 plagues. In the last days, we read about seven plagues. And it's interesting that in Exodus, only the last seven did not affect the Israelites. The first three actually did. And here in the end, we only have seven and none of them affect God's people. They are in this period, sealed by God, protected by God, kept in the palm of his hand as the apple of his eye.
Plague number three talks about the rivers and springs that are turned to blood. Plague number uh, four, that must be, men are scourged by the sun. Plague five, darkness and pain. Plague six, the Euphrates dries up. And And then finally, plague seven, the earth is utterly shaken when hail falls to um, the ground, to the earth. Now, under the sixth and seventh plague, we have the coming of Jesus Christ himself. And it is depicted there as the drying up of the river Euphrates. Now, again, that is an incredible typology that we find in the past of that very event. You will remember when Babylon fell in ancient times, it was Cyrus that came as king from the east. We learned about this in our stories on the book of Daniel. And he came. And what did he do with the river Euphrates? He dried it up. He diverted the river, he marched his soldiers under the wall, and he overthrew Babylon in a night. And it was he that released the Jews so they could go back and restore the temple and build their kingdom. Now, this incredible typology repeats itself in the end of time. The king that comes from the east this time is not Cyrus, but it's Jesus Christ himself. He is the king of the east, and he comes, and Euphrates is dried up. Now, what is Euphrates? Euphrates is the river that flowed through ancient Babylon. Now, remember, in Revelation 17, it says that the harlot woman, this false system, the papacy, is sitting on a beast, but it also says that she was situated on waters. And those waters in Bible prophecy, according to Revelation 17 and verse 15, they represent multitudes of people. Isn't that interesting? Multitudes of people, multitudes of nations. These are the ones that have given their support to Babylon, their support to this power. They have received the mark of the beast. They have followed in the footsteps of Rome. They are now dried up. They are now removed. They are now conquered by the king of the east, Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 16 and verse 13 and 14 says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are these powers that are coming together and trying to create this final, last, great tower of Babel are utterly going to be defeated. The three, these three powers, the dragon being Satan and the beast being, of course, the Antichrist, the papacy, and the false prophet, this false movement that is working miracles, you know, and there are various movements around the world that are um, creating um, or performing miracles and signs which are leading people into these false systems of worship. They come together in this final great battle of Armageddon. It says in verse 14, and they, and they, For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the great battle of, the great, of that great day of God Almighty. And then as they come together there for that final battle, and it talks about here, it talks about these spirits of demons, these spirits of, and we, we, we see in our world today so many supernatural, spiritualistic events going on, and signs and wonders are being performed that are leading people to believe in certain things that are so contrary to Scripture. We can only stand upon the firm platform of God's Word. We cannot be swayed by miracles and signs. And so the dragon Satan is at work, the beast, the Antichrist at work, the false prophet, which is really these, these moves movements within various religions that are really coming together with Rome and and, and under Rome are performing signs and wonders that will lead the very world to believe that this is indeed a power under God, but we know, according to scripture and prophecy, that it will lead to only confusion and utter, utter 
um, failure because in the end, this power will not last. Jesus Christ himself knocks on the door of, his, of, of our hearts, on the door of his church, of his people, and he wants to come in. He wants to be with us. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to give us the gifts of revelation. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 19, and I want to close with this verse, it says, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Babylon fails. Babylon does not last. It is divided into three parts. The dragon, the, the, the beast, and the false prophet, they try to come together, and yet they are now divided. And then verse 15, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches, keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. These are the words of Jesus. He says, I am coming as a thief. I am coming soon. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. What are those garments? It's the garments of the righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ wants to give us his garments. He wants to give us his salvation, his righteousness. My friends, the prophetic scene is all ready for these things to unfold before our very eyes. We, have, we, look, we look in the past, we look at the echoes, and we see the Tower of Babel and how it utterly failed. We look at the future, and we're seeing this new tower being built before our very eyes, a spiritual tower, a tower in which the spiritual Babylon is reigning, this figurative um, picture of... Uh, of, 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 of the past is just incredibly potent in the language of Revelation. It is all the way through Revelation. Babylon is re-emerging and it is coming together and it is enforcing itself through signs and wonders. It is arraying the kings of the earth. It is getting the political powers in place for this final, final demonstration of its power. And yet, the prophecy predicts that it will fall apart. That from even within the very camp of the enemy, there will be confusion in its ranks. And Babylon will fall apart. And if we want to make an investment in the future, don't make it in Babylon. Make it in the kingdom of God. Make your investment in the kingdom of God because that will last forever. That's a kingdom that no one will overthrow because it will last forever and ever and ever. And that's where we can put our faith tonight, in that kingdom. Christ has bought that kingdom, he has secured that kingdom, and he's going to establish that kingdom very, very soon when he comes. So let's pray that we will be amongst those that will receive the seal of God so that we can pass through these times with Christ by our side as our protector and our brother so that when he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords, we may be welcomed into that great kingdom that he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for tonight's study. We want to thank you, Lord, for these incredible prophecies of Revelation. Lord, as we've looked at Revelation 17 and we've looked at some um, truths from various chapters there, um, we just see that Babylon as a power is indeed growing in significance even as we speak, Lord, and yet we need not be afraid, we need not be um, dismayed because your prophecy also predicts and, sh and shows us with clarity the end of all things, that Babylon will not last, that it will fall, and that your kingdom will reign, your kingdom will be established, and we long to be part of that. We long to receive your seal 
and to have you in our hearts and in our minds, to belong to your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that we may continue to learn from these prophecies and that you will speak to our hearts through them, that, Lord, we may be on that winning side, on the side of the Lamb, that we will be part of the called, the chosen, and the faithful. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.